Raul Trotman, 21, of Simcoe, Ontario, was charged with stabbing a fellow fisherman because of an argument over a worm. Brian Herzog, 18, of Reading, Pennsylvania, was charged with shooting his sister and leaving her paralyzed from the waist down because she beat him in a wrestling match. Dina Murdoch, 52, a teacher from Carrollton, Texas, was charged with choking a fourth grade boy because she caught him sneaking a peek at her grade book. A Milwaukee woman killed her friend over an argument about a dress. And I've got to wonder if the argument about was about whether the dress was black or blue or white and gold. William Fargus, 82, of Crown Point, Indiana, was charged with stabbing his wife, Eleanor, 84, because, according to the statement he gave the police, she was not in the Christmas spirit. Experts across the nation are concerned over the increasing numbers of murders and, and violent crimes due to rage over the smallest and silliest of things. Some point to the pandemic, which has us on edge over things that used to seem trivial. Others point to maybe big city policies that are soft on crime. Um, but whatever the cause, there have been a steadily growing number of murders between friends, siblings, co-workers, relatives, and even spouses. Now, the media loves to focus on the mass shootings, but I read a statistic that showed that 48% of all murders list argument as the primary motive for the murder. It seems that America's boundless optimism has given way to an addiction to, to rage and anger. We are a nation of rage. We have road rage, air rage, office rage, teenage rage, computer rage, maternal rage. Just a few of those that I have found. We're on edge. We've lost control of our tempers and we seem to be on a constant simmer, ready to boil over at the slightest increase in temperature. Apparently, Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about when he says in the Sermon on the Mount, you heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be sub subject to judgment. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, and the first part of verse 22. Now, last week we looked at how Jesus said that he had not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. And we talked about the Pharisees and how they viewed the law and how they loved to quibble and argue about every outward application of the law. Well, Jesus looked beyond the letter of the law to the heart. So instead of reducing God's law to a list of do's and don'ts, Jesus journeys to the heart. He goes beyond what we do to why we do what we do. And throughout the, the rest of Matthew 5, Jesus quotes six points of the Old Testament law. But then he adjusts the, the, 
focus knob of our theological lens to look at the heart. As if to underscore his point, Jesus begins with the one law that most people are the most confident that they have never broken. Out of all the Ten Commandments, this is one that, that I know I've never blown it. And it's this one, you shall not murder. All right, I've never done that. All clear there, I'm good to go. Uh, move on, next. But Jesus looks me in the eye and says, whoa there, not so quick. Let's look a little deeper. Sure, you've never actually murdered anyone, Dan, but what about your heart? Have you ever harbored anger, resentment at someone? Do you ever become bitter to the point where you despise another person? Well, Lord, I um, yeah, that's different. I mean, sure, but I, I'm only human, and we all get a little ticked off, don't we? And boy, if you saw what they did to me, well, you'd understand. No, he did see what they did to me. He does understand. But again, Jesus would look me in the eye and say, no, Dan, it's no different. It's the same. Where do you think murder comes from? And Jesus wants us to look at where sin and righteousness begin. Right? I mean, people pull the trigger with their finger because they've already pulled the trigger in their heart. And Jesus says, how can you claim to love me and serve me while at the same time hating the very people that, that I created and loved and died for? Right? And these are also the same people that I've called you to love and to serve. I gave my life for them. When you hate them, you are hating what I love. And this is how Jesus kind of refocuses everything that we think about murder and anger. Now, if you murder someone, you're going to find yourself before a judge, right? You're going to be in court. You're going to be on trial. But Jesus says harboring selfish anger in your heart is going to have you before a much higher court. Now, there is no human court of capable of discerning and judging the human heart. However, there is a divine Supreme Court that is capable of weighing our hearts. Jeremiah 17.10 says that God can search the heart and examine the mind. And it's this judgment that matters most. And God isn't just concerned with the, the physical act of murder. He is concerned with our murderous hearts. 1 John 3.15 puts it quite clearly. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And do you know that no murderer has eternal life in him? Right, so if somebody asks the question, are you guilty of murder? And we can confidently say, no, I didn't do that. But then if the question is asked, well, do you hate somebody? Yeah. Got to raise my hand there. In West Memphis, Arkansas, not too long ago, three young men were 
charged with murder and in court the father of one of the victims suddenly rushed at the men screaming i'll chase you all the way to hell well one writer observed i understand the father's fierce anger but there's something almost prophetic about his words if we allow our hatred for those who have wronged us to go unchecked it will eventually destroy us we will follow our bitterness quote all the way to hell end quote but jesus continues to probe deeper and he goes from addressing our attitudes to our words and, and this is appropriate because our words really are a, a direct outlet of our heart elsewhere jesus says uh, out of the abundance or the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks our words always have a habit of betraying what's really in our hearts. And here's what Jesus says here. He says, again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, scholars have been debating these sentences for centuries because, well, they involve words that are very difficult to translate. Uh, especially into English. In fact, the word raka is in our text because we really don't have an English word equivalent for it. Um, but it would be a mistake to focus our discussion and our understanding of this verse just on the specific words that Jesus uses, right? It was not his intention to just give us a list of words or phrases that it's wrong for Christians to use, when they're mad at somebody, right? If he wanted to list all of the words that could be spoken angrily and hatefully, it would take at least the rest of the book of Matthew, if not the whole New Testament. Just focusing on the specific words is to fall into the same trap of the Pharisees. You know, to say that, well, you can't say the words, you fool, or call somebody a fool because of what Jesus says here, but you can call them moron, imbecile, stupid idiot, or whatever else you want. Right? That's to entirely miss the point. The fact is that Jesus himself used the word fool to describe others. And so did Paul, and so did James. Right? The specific word is not the point. This is all about the attitude and the intention with which it's said. Jesus is describing here the hateful attitudes that, that drive all of our hateful speech. And Jesus is just giving a couple of examples here. The word raka and the Greek word for fool refer to a, a deep-seated anger. It is to harbor contempt and resentment towards someone. And when you cling to this sort of, of anger, it clings to you and you can't keep it hidden, it will boil over. And that almost always takes the form, at least initially, as hateful speech. Words that are, are sharpened like daggers and used like weapons. They are intended to hurt, <laughs> and they do. You know the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's a lie. It sounds nice, but it isn't true. Words do hurt, and they hurt deeply. 
imagine that you're carrying around some wounds, maybe even some deep wounds left by somebody's hateful and hurtful words. If that saying were honest, it would go like this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words, they can really hurt me. They hurt where it matters the most. Dr. Larry Calvin tells the story uh, of a 25-year-old young lady who came into his uh, counseling center for help. This gal, she was 5'2 and weighed only 90 pounds, just a stick of a woman. But the reason she came there for help is that she wanted help losing weight. She described herself with words like fat, obese, heavy, overweight. Her daily diet consisted of, get this, three grapes, a teaspoonful of grape nuts, and even that made her feel bloated. So while treating this young lady, Dr. Calvin learned of all of the abuse that had been heaped on her as a child. But there was one particular incident that was deeply etched into her soul. When she was 11 years old, she snuck off to the mall to, to meet a boy that she liked. And they had a Coke. And they walked around the mall holding hands and looking in store windows. Well, her brother ratted her out. And when she got home, she was in trouble. And her dad started yelling at her. But it was one sentence that scarred her for life. Quote, I don't see what boys see in you anyway, as fat as you are. And from then on, every time she looked in the mirror, she heard those words and she saw herself as a fat, ugly nobody, someone that no one would want. Words do murder. They kill the heart. They suck the life out of the soul. They, they strangle the human spirit. They stab our hopes and dreams. A bullet or a knife, it, it takes the life quickly, but angry, hurtful words take it slowly, one syllable at a time. And maybe you've been deeply wounded by words. You're carrying around in your soul the scars of words that wound. This is what Jesus is trying to heal here. This is what Jesus is trying to prevent. Instead of selfish anger, instead of hateful, hurtful words, Jesus points us in a different direction. He points us toward reconciliation and forgiveness. He wants us to, to lay aside our right to get even, our right to hold a grudge, and seek to restore broken relationships. You see, your anger wants to enslave you, but forgiveness and reconciliation, they set you free. And I think this is far some this is something far easier uh, seen than explained. There's a story about a little boy long ago went to visit his grandparents and, and his grandpa gave him his very first slingshot. I remember when I got a slingshot as a kid, I thought it was the coolest thing. And so this boy would go out in the woods and he would practice his slingshot, but no matter how hard he tried, he could never hit his target. Um so one day after coming back into the woods, he got into grandma's yard and he saw his grandma's pet duck. And he was just frustrated because he couldn't hit anything. And on an impulse, he took aim 
and he let it fly. And what do you know? The very first time in his life, he hits his target dead on and the duck falls dead. <laughs> the boy is in a panic and in desperation. He hides the duck in a wood pile only to look up and see his sister watching. And there she is with this wicked grin on her face. But she doesn't say a word. Well, later that day after lunch, Grandma says, hey, Sally, let's wash the dishes. But Sally said, well, Johnny told me that he wanted to help wash dishes. Didn't you, Johnny? And then she leans over and whispers to his ear, remember the duck. And so Johnny did the dishes. Well, later on, uh, Grandpa asked the children if they wanted to go fishing. But then Sally says, uh, or Grandma says, I I'm sorry, but I need Sally to help make supper. And then Sally says, oh, Johnny said he wanted to do that. And so Sally goes fishing while Johnny stays and helps Grandma. Well, after several days of Johnny doing both his chores and Sally's chores and Sally constantly reminding him, remember the duck. He could take it no longer. And finally, he Johnny just bursts out and he confesses the whole thing to Grandma. I killed the duck. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I killed the duck. And with a smile, Grandma says, I know, Johnny. I was watching from the window. I saw the whole thing. But because I love you, I forgive you. I just wondered how long you would let Sally make a slave of you. Well, what Jesus is saying here is this. Forget the duck. The relationship is more important. Forgiveness and reconciliation can cure an angry heart. They stop murder before the hate even starts. And forgiveness and reconciliation, that's what God desires most of us. Listen to what Jesus says in verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Do you hear what Jesus is saying here? He says, it's more important that you be reconciled to your brother or your sister than it is that you worship. Now, he's speaking to Jews here that live under the old covenant. And so he's saying that you've, not, you've got no business going to the temple and, and, and offering a sacrifice when you know that there's something between you and someone else. And I think if Jesus were speaking directly to us today, he would say, you know what? Before you go to church on Sunday morning, before you go and sing songs, before you take communion, before you go and listen to a sermon, you need to go settle matters between you and whoever's mad at you. Right? Don't allow anger to create a wedge in that relationship. Go take care of that. I've heard it said many times that that worship is the highest calling of people, that the greatest thing that we can do is to worship God. But I'm not sure that's right, because Jesus says here that there's something more important than worship, and that is to heal broken relationships. Forgiveness and reconciliation, that's our highest calling. 
Jesus' words in this verse also point us to what we can do to start healing the broken relationship. And it is this, take the first step, right? You make the first move and be willing to take that first step, right? Don't be waiting on the other person. You do it. You take the initiative. So many relationships are never healed and they just grow more distant and broken over the years because neither party is willing to make the first move. And one of the hardest things to do, and, and it's hard for me, is to say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I shouldn't have said what I said. I shouldn't have did what I did. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And we allow our pride. We allow our anger to keep us trapped in isolation and brokenness. And many times the only thing that is needed to start the healing process is for somebody just to take the first step, to make the first move. Jesus doesn't say, well, wait until they come to you or, or wait until they say something. He doesn't say, wait until the right moment. Well, Jesus says, before you do anything else, even before you worship me, you Go, apologize, ask for forgiveness, be reconciled. Don't just take care of it with God, take care of it with them. And let me throw in a freebie here as well. And it's this, that we should take the initiative, no matter which side of the wrong we are on, whether we are the guilty party or we are the victim. Now, in these verses right here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus portrays us as the guilty party. Somebody else is mad at us, and we need to go and ask for forgiveness and take care of that first. But if you turn to Matthew 18, verse 15, there Jesus calls on the victim, the wronged party, to make the first step. Here's what he says. If your brother sins against you, go. Make the first move and show him his fault just between the two of you. And showing him his fault isn't a matter of, of putting them in their place or proving that you're right, but it is in pursuit of, of forgiveness and reconciliation to, as Jesus says it, win them over. So Jesus isn't confused, nor is he contradicting himself. What Jesus is saying is this, no matter what, I want you to be willing to make the first move. You take the first step at healing the relationship, of pursuing forgiveness. You take the initiative. You said something stupid to someone, go and apologize to them. Ask for forgiveness. Heal the relationship. Someone hurt you? Let them know. Go share your heart with them. Go with forgiveness on your heart. Heal the relationship. Don't wait on the other person. You do it. But not only should we be willing to make the first move, Jesus says that we should do it quickly. Act quickly. Don't let anger fester. Right? Jesus says that it's important that we do this as a matter of urgency. Do it now. Do it fast. Verses 25 and 26. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you are still with them on the way. Don't wait for the judge. 
do it now. Or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. This isn't the legal advice of an attorney here. The bottom line is this. Jesus wants us to start healing the relationship as quickly as possible. Because the longer we allow deep-seated anger to fester, the more it can grow, the more dangerous it becomes. And people will carry around this deep-seated anger for years, even long after they've really forgotten what made them mad in the first place. You've heard of the famous Hatfield and McCoy family feud. It left 12 people dead over 12 years. And to this day, nobody is for sure what originally started the fight. Some say this, some say that. But everybody knows that they were angry, but they can't even remember why. The longer we let anger go, the harder it becomes to heal the relationship. That's why Jesus says, settle matters quickly. Because it only gets worse if we don't. B.R. Holt tells a, a funny story about an incident of road rage. This occurred one morning during rush hour traffic in Washington, D.C. And having lived in the area, I could tell you how bad it could be. But a young lady shot out from a side street into the, the main line of traffic and cutting off a driver, forcing him to brake sharply and missing her by mere inches. And he was furious. Well, within seconds of cutting this other person off, they hit a red light, traffic comes to a stop. And so he gets out of his car and he starts marching angrily toward her car. And she looks in her mirror, she sees him coming. And at the very least, he plans on chewing her up one side and down the other. So this attractive young lady jumped into action. She jumped out of her car and she ran to meet him with a, a big smile on her face. And before he could even get out one word or even knew what was happening, she threw her arms around him, hugged him tightly and planted a passionate kiss right on his lips. And then just as quickly, she was back in her car driving away, leaving her antagonist standing in the middle of the street, speechless and looking somewhat embarrassed. But he was no longer angry right? because she acted quickly. Now, I'm not saying you should uh, settle all your disputes with a passionate kiss, but there is a principle at work here. Take care of it sooner rather than later. Paul said it this way in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Right? Same thing Jesus said, settle matters quickly. And Paul gives us a reason. He says, and do not give the devil a foothold. You see, if you don't settle matters quickly and resolve the anger and heal the relationship, and that anger grows, what happens is you're giving the devil a foothold, a beachhead, in your heart from which he can conduct further missions, further operations. So I gotta ask you, does Satan have any footholds in your heart? 
As I draw to a close, let me ask you some personal questions. Do you have any unreconciled anger? Do you have any bitterness that you're carrying around? Are you ready to let go of that heavy baggage? Because it's time. It's time to forgive and time to move on. And quit waiting. Quit waiting for them to make the first move. Quit waiting for them to apologize. And I'll be honest with you. Maybe they're not even sorry. Maybe they don't even know that they hurt you. You don't have to carry it around anymore. You can hand it over to God. You can let him take care of it in his perfect time and in his perfect way. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Leave room for God's wrath. Leave room for God's justice. Let him take care of it. Quit being too embarrassed to go and apologize yourself. Be willing to make the first move. Before the sun sets today, unless you're watching this late at night, maybe before the sun sets tomorrow, decide what that first move is going to be. Do something about it. Take care of it before you go back to church and worship next week, before you uh, watch another uh, message. Either you will heal a broken relationship, or at least you'll give something over to God so you don't have to carry it around anymore. Let me leave you with the story of Amy Bill. Amy was a college student um, in 1993 an American college student, and she was working in South Africa with a local university. Now, these were tumultuous years as apartheid was coming to an end. Uh, it's bitter but inevitable end. And South Africa was less than one year away from its first full free election in which Black voters were eligible to vote. And so Amy was there in South Africa helping to register blacks for their first ever election. And on the afternoon of August 25th, 1993, a group of young black men were leaving an anti-apartheid rally where they had been worked up. And they came across this defenseless white girl. She had been at the rally too, there to register voters. But what they didn't see was somebody who was helping their cause. They didn't see that. They just saw somebody whom they assumed was a white settler, somebody who was a part of their oppression. And they took up years of that resentment and rage out on her. And they stoned and stabbed Amy Beale to death. But this is not the tragic end of a tragic story. It's only the first chapter. Weeks later, Amy's parents traveled to South Africa themselves, not to seek revenge or to hire a high-priced attorney to make sure justice was done, but to further pursue the dream that their daughter gave her life for. And they established the Amy Beale Foundation, whose purpose was to develop Black youth in the townships to build peace and reconciliation between the two divided races in South Africa. Upon their release in 1998, two of Amy's killers 
were hired and began to work with the Amy Beale Foundation. And they grew very close to her parents. And today they're helping to build the dream of the young woman that they killed. Amy's mother, Linda, says, I've grown fond of these young men. They're like my own kids. It may sound strange, but I tend to think there's a little bit of Amy's spirit in them. Some people think we're supporting criminals, but the foundation that we started in her name is all about preventing crime among youth. It's what Desmond Tutu calls Ubuntu, to choose to forgive rather than to demand retribution. A belief that my humanity is inextricably caught up in yours. So go, find forgiveness, and don't give the devil a foothold.